Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled The Wisdom of This World. In our present world, we're inundated with ideas, various beliefs and philosophies, various forms of carnal wisdom. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram or TikTok to see all of these different ideas, these philosophies and carnal wisdoms, these belief systems, the wisdom of this world paraded in front of us and even at times celebrated. On today's radio broadcast, I want to share a relevant passage from the Apostle Paul's writings to the church at Corinth that I believe will speak to these issues and give clarity to us as disciples of Christ in an age of great fog, if you will, as it pertains to truth, truth being that which is right. Now, let me just say concerning truth, if something is true, it's true whether anyone believes it or not. Because truth is something that is fact, reality. So many times in our modern relativistic world, people will say that this is his truth or her truth. He spoke his truth. And by that, they mean that person's opinion and what is true so-called to them. But there is only the truth. Now, there are different sides of a story, and there are various opinions and perspectives. But as it relates to what actually happened, what actually is right, what actually is wrong, there's only one side of that story, as it were, and it's what is true in the mind and purpose of God. What God has said is true. Just using a disagreement, for example, two people might witness the same event, and they might come away with a different perspective as to what happened. Or maybe they engage in a debate and come away with two different opinions of what the truth of a matter is. But there's always reality. There's always what really did happen in the first place. And so as we think about and speak about the wisdom of this world today, what I want you to keep in mind is that though there's great fog as it relates to the truth in the world today, what really is true and what really is right exists. There is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There are things that are right that should be defended. There are things that are wrong that should be condemned. And at the same time, there is ultimate truth as it relates to the record, what has actually happened. Different versions of reality do not exist around us, but that which is true, well, that's what is indeed reality, whether we understand it as such or not. I want to turn this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and begin going through some passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about what the Apostle Paul would call the wisdom of this world. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to share a couple of messages with you in addition to this one from the book of 1 Corinthians. This is not an exhaustive series on the book of 1 Corinthians, but there are basically three thoughts that I want to give you that I believe will be relevant for us in our modern day and age, particularly as it relates to the wisdom of this world, but also what it is that we are to know, particularly in our churches and how the understanding, remembrance, and application of what we know is actually going to be a deliverance to us as New Testament churches. 
Well, as we introduce this passage with you today, this is going to come from the book of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 17 and continuing through the remainder of that chapter. Obviously, we'll have to be very brief in our thoughts on some of these passages. We can't go into them to the great depth that we would prefer to or that perhaps we would in a full-length sermon in the pulpit. But there's much wisdom that you and I can glean from this first chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Now, this first epistle to the Corinthians begins, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He would later tell them that God shall confirm them unto the end blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful. I want you to understand that Paul is writing to a church, a church full of people called to be saints, a church full of people who are sanctified, a church full of people who will be confirmed blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not unregenerate people, nor is this epistle written to the world at large, but Paul has specific people in mind. Now, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, you know that they had every conceivable problem that a church could have in the world. There's hardly an issue that they were not presently dealing with that you and I could deal with in today's time. And yet, despite all of that, number one, Paul considers them a church. And as such, number two, these people are people who have been saved by the grace of God, called to be saints. Paul is not writing this epistle to a church full of unregenerates. And that's so often how this is painted in today's time, especially among those who believe in election and predestination, as I myself do. This church is not a church full of unregenerate, false professors, false converts who are unsaved, thinking they're saved and needed to do something about it. But this is a church full of people called to be saints who would be confirmed to the end blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, they had all sorts of problems. Now, as Paul begins this epistle, then I don't find it a mystery that he would begin with confronting the wisdom of this world. This church in Corinth, they had all sorts of issues. They had divisions over who their favorite preacher was. They had one major scandal with a man fornicating with his father's wife that's addressed in chapter 5. In Corinth, they had members suing one another. They had the flaunting of Christian liberty to the offense of others. There was a misuse of the Lord's Supper. People were becoming intoxicated in the Lord's Supper. But probably the most devastating problem that the church of Corinth was experiencing was a doctrinal error that denied the resurrection of the body at the end of time. It denied the bodily resurrection. And so... This was a church in great trouble. It stood at risk of losing its candlestick and ceasing to be a church, dying in the world, and Paul writes this first epistle that they would repent, and by repenting, this church would have salvation. That is to say, this church would be delivered from ruin, from being destroyed, from losing their candlestick and dying as a church, because churches can die, and therefore churches need to be delivered. He writes this letter in attempt to deliver them. And, as we read in 2 Corinthians, much of it worked, and this church did repent of much of the problems that they were experiencing. A brief word up front about the city of Corinth. This city exists on an isthmus, a neck of land, as it were, between two gulfs. At each gulf near Corinth, there was a port, so this is a port city. 
because of that, it's a multicultural society. It's a very wealthy place. And with all of these various cultures that came there, came their religious traditions, their way of thinking, their way of life. And so this was a place that at times could be a place of great confusion. Paul planted this church as a congregation in Acts chapter 18, and you can read Acts 18 verses 1 through 8 and read the story of its founding. He plants this church in between being in Athens and Ephesus. Following his ministry here, following Paul's ministry here, another well-known biblical figure would labor here, a man named Apollos. And so that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase— He planted this church. Apollos watered this church. Both of these men labored there for a period of time in this congregation. Now, on to the meat of the text for today. In chapter 1, Paul begins to distinguish between what he calls the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. In verse 17, Paul says, "...for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom." not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, to be very clear, as Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. As it relates to our eternal salvation, if Christ died for a person, that person will be with him in glory without the loss of one. Again, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The angel speaking to Joseph before the birth of Christ, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. There's no way a child of God will not be with the Lord in glory. It's simply not something that's going to happen. If Jesus died for a person, that person is going to be with him in heaven without the loss of one, from the least to the greatest. They will all know him. The Bible is very clear on that. So what does Paul mean, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect? Well, if you and I go and we preach worldly wisdom instead of the true gospel of Christ, what we preach is not going to have the desired effect. It's not going to be effective in the lives of those that hear it. Now, just just be very plain about this. You, if you go to a church, know that there are times when preaching is effective in your life, and there are times when the preaching of the cross is not effective in your life. If I preach anything other than the cross, I shouldn't expect it to be effective as a gospel message, but whatever subject I preach, I should begin with that and run as quickly as I can to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My preaching of the cross will not be effective if I preach the gospel with wisdom of words. When Paul says wisdom of words here, the word wisdom is Sophia. It's where we get the English name Sophia. If you know anyone named Sophia, their name was originally a Greek word that simply meant wisdom. And it can have reference to mere wisdom. You might have a person in your life that's wise, and it could be said of them that they have Sophia, they have wisdom. But what Paul is doing here is to use that word in one of two ways, to describe the wisdom of this world or describe the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom of God. This word many times can have reference to what is right to the world. It can have reference to the philosophies, the traditions of thought invented by philosophers and propagated by their disciples. This could have reference to the teachings of the hedonistic people, the Epicureans, the Stoics. You could have reference to any of the old philosophers in human history. And certainly Corinth being, as it was, a former Greek city that was now a Roman colony, 
they had been exposed to the various philosophies of the world in that day and age. Paul traveled here from Athens. You know, Athens was a place that was absolutely full of philosophers at Mars Hill, Ares Rock, Areopagus. Philosophy was something that people were inundated with in that day as they are today. And Paul is contrasting the wisdom, the Sophia of the world versus the wisdom that is of God. He's contrasting the gospel message and Christ with the various philosophical schools of thought in his day and age. Now, let me just interject this thought here. What the world teaches then around us, when I say the world, I have reference to human culture outside of Christ, the gospel, the church, the word of God. When I say the world, I have reference to that which is not of God. The wisdom of the world stands in contrast to the wisdom of God. What the world around us believes so many times is not true from a biblical perspective. What might be some examples of that? Well, in our present time, we have a philosophy that the world came into being millions and millions of years ago, that the universe is billions of years old, that we evolved from a single-cell organism to the most advanced species that we have ever witnessed. The world around us, the wisdom of this world, teaches that we are just an advanced primate. And if we're just an advanced primate, it's no different taking the life of a human being as it is any other type of animal that we might come across in the animal kingdom. We're just more evolved bacteria. We might as well just be any other form of life. The world around us teaches that a person's gender is something that is fluid and can change. The world around us teaches that you can become a woman if you were born a man, and you can become a man if you were born a woman, that those things are not determined by your genetics and your biology, which science would say that they are. But so many times science goes out the window when a person's agenda or the wisdom of this world contradicts it. The sanctity of human life is another issue that the wisdom of this world has an idea about. And you'll find that politicians and companies and celebrities and Hollywood, if you pay attention to them, they've not only swallowed the wisdom of this world as a worldview, but many of them are active in propagating that worldview and furthering that worldview. And so the wisdom of this world is the popular mentality around us in a lot of schools. Now, the schools around here, you might have teachers here or there that have embraced the wisdom of this world, but most of those teachers are people like you and me, and they just want to go and teach kids and love on kids and send those kids home to their families receiving a good education. But you know as well as I do that there are some regions of this country where even education is used as a mechanism for indoctrinating people in the wisdom of this world. Now, verse 17, what does Paul say? If he preaches with wisdom of words, the cross of Christ will be made of none effect. That is, his preaching will not be effective. His preaching of the cross will not have the positive effect that he wants it to have. People won't be converted. People will not join the church. People's lives will not be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And again, this doesn't threaten the work of Christ because it is finished. He shall save his people from their sins. All that the Father hath given him shall come to him. But it does mean that the preaching of the cross that he personally does would not be effective. And we want our preaching to be effective. If I mix what I preach with the wisdom of this world, the ideas that are 
popularized in the world around us, well, frankly, it ceases to be the gospel, and the gospel loses its power in my ministry. Now, it wouldn't be proper for me to be in this chapter without bringing verse 18 to your attention. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. What enables a person to receive the message of the preaching of the cross is the new birth. Until we're born again, we are natural men, and the gospel, the things of the Spirit of God, are foolish unto the natural man. He's simply unable to know them. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In chapter 1, we read that to the Jews, Christ is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, Christ is foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, to understand the gospel and to love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it takes divine calling. It takes being called when we were death in sin, called from death to life itself. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That is, as Ephesians 1.19 says, we have been quickened, we have been spiritually resurrected. And in that spiritual resurrection, we have this new nature, we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we are alive in Christ, we have been drawn unto him. And as we are spiritually living people, we've been quickened when we were dead, but now we are alive in a spiritual sense, the gospel is no longer foolish to us because it speaks to a condition that from the heart we know we have. We know that we're sinners, we know that we're sinful people. And this gospel speaks to that dilemma. It delivers us, it helps us, it comforts us, it assures us, but it can only do those things if we're not people who perish, if we're people who are saved, if we're people who are called, if we're no longer natural men. We are no longer by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but we have indeed been quickened. Now, as we come to the final point that we want to emphasize on today's broadcast, I want to read verses 19 through 28, and just let these words fall on your ears. Just listen to these words as you hear them read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require after a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty, and base things of this world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, 
and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, that passage is more than a mouthful, as they say, and it's something that we could spend several, several radio broadcasts elaborating on. But I just want you to get a flavor of that sentiment. All the way back in verse 19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That comes from Isaiah 29 and verse 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, you and I might look at the world around us and come to the conclusion that, well, truth is just sold at a premium, as it were. Truth is something that very few people have in great quantity. The agendas of this world seem to be popular and winning, and it can cause us to be very discouraged. We can be distraught. But you should understand the end of this story. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. What you believe about the Lord, about the Word of God, about what your worldview should be, what your worldview is, you might believe that those things because they're a minority, lack strength. Well, what do we read at the end of this? Well, God has chosen the weak things to confound things that are strong. You might believe that these people have so much power and authority in the world who disagree with you and mock what you believe and laugh at what you believe. Listen, in news stories on social media, a person could simply leave a comment, praise God, that's wonderful. And all of these trolls begin to laugh and to scoff and to mock simply because someone gives God glory in public. The most recent example that I've seen of that as I'm recording this broadcast would be of these new photos that we have from a very powerful camera up in space, a very powerful telescope that took pictures great distance away, billions of light years away. And as people see those, they comment that the heavens declare the glory of God. And you might wonder, why is space so large? It used to trouble me that we have not only stars, but galaxies full of millions of stars, millions of galaxies full of millions of stars, all floating around in outer space. And that troubled me. Why would all of that exist? Well, in the Word of God, we read that the heavens are His throne and the earth is His footstool. Well, if this grand scope of the universe serves as his throne, what does that tell you about the might and power of this God that we believe in, this God that we serve, this God that created? Well, when people comment, the heavens declare the glory of God, oh, there are people that mock and scoff and laugh and ridicule. It really is an unpopular thing in our day and age to believe in God outwardly and openly and give him the glory from a biblical perspective. Is simply not popular, and you will be scoffed at. You will be mocked for that. But notice here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. It doesn't matter how powerful they are and how much they laugh now. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Who's going to have the last say in all things? God is going to have the last say. God gets the last laugh, as it were. God will win at the end. And in that day, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of this world? And the answer to that question is yes. Now, later on in this chapter, we read some interesting hypothetical statements. And I'm going to be clear that these are hypothetical. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Well, God has no foolishness, and God is not foolish. But Paul's rhetoric here is as so. If God had foolishness, his foolishness would be wiser than the wisest of men. And likewise, God has no weakness. But if God had a weakness, and he doesn't, 
his weakness would be stronger than the strongest of men. Paul's rather creative point here is that God is so wise and God is so strong that the strongest wisdom of men and the strongest strength of men would be inferior to God's foolishness or his weakness had he such, which he does not. Now, when the scoffers and the mockers and the unbelievers, the secularists, the atheists, when they laugh, when they mock, when they scorn, just remember that the weakness of your God is stronger than their strength, and his foolishness, if he had any, which he doesn't, is wiser than their wisdom. In fact, according to his will, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Now, the Bible is one book full of story after story after story of people who triumphed despite being weak or what appeared to be a weakness, in a weakness. You have men like Joseph, you have men like Jacob, you have the nation of Israel, you have men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over and over and over in the Old Testament. David and Goliath is another good example. Men who should not have had the victory. Gideon, another one, who had the victory because God was with him, and only because God was with him. Fast forward to the New Testament. You have 12 largely uneducated, hardworking fishermen who take the gospel of Christ and evangelize the known world, constituting churches in all major cities throughout the world in that day. That looked like weakness, and yet God used it as strength. In fact, the church began to blaze abroad because it was persecuted. According to the book of Acts, people scattered because of persecution, and as they did, they blazed the gospel abroad, and the gospel spreads through the known world. God uses weakness to accomplish mighty things. You'll never find a greater example, though, of God using what looked like weakness to accomplish the greatest victory ever than you find upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus had all power given to him in heaven and in earth. He could have called legions of angels to defend him, but he went as a lamb done before the shear, endured three mock trials by people he could have obliterated. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was scourged, He carried his cross through a raving horde of people. He bore public shame. He was nailed to the cross. He gave up the ghost, and he was buried. And yet, in what looked like weakness, the greatest victory that humankind has ever known was accomplished, Jesus' victory over sins, the sins of his people. Now, why does God do this? Why does he use that which is weak or perceived as weak to thwart that which is perceived as strong? Why does his wisdom that is perceived as folly, why does he use that to overcome the wisdom of this world? Look at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, Christ is wisdom personified and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. One reason that God does this is so he is the sole owner of all of the glory that is received in the triumph. And so, if you glory, well, you better be glorying in the Lord, because it is only in the Lord that we should glory. Lastly, on today's broadcast, I would just point out over and over again along these lines how wisdom is justified of her children 
It doesn't matter who you are. The Word of God is vindicated each and every day before our very eyes. As the wisdom of the Proverbs come true, as the heartfelt sentiment of the Psalms are lived out, as we look at the prophecies of Christ's life having come true, being fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus, and we look at the world around us today. Romans 1, being one mirror of our own present generation, the Word of God is continually vindicated all around us. It is easy and obvious for anyone to see that the wisdom of God stands true, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.